Okay, Psalm 69. You will notice very early that there are verses here that are quoted in the New Testament and applied to Jesus. Uh, There are also some verses that are quoted and applied like the verses, the imprecatory verses are quoted and applied to the enemies of Jesus. So obviously a key part of what we're doing is going to try to be how does the New Testament use this psalm and what does it show us about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament and, and how the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. But we first must look at this psalm in its context. I want you to notice that the psalm will go, and this is a kind of rough outline of Psalm 69. In verses 1 through 5, he begs God to save him from distress. Now, some may differ a little bit with this, but but not much. He begs God to save him from distress. 69, 6 through 12 is a description of his distress. Once again, in 69, verses 13 through 18, like that first section, he begs God to save him. Then, in 69, 19 through 21, it is a description of the distress. So we have a couple of sections where you repeat this idea. Now, you don't find the idea repeated, but you find a petition for judgment on his enemies. And it closes with a statement of praise. Now, I could get more sophisticated, too, with those titles. And we could pick out, as we often do, a line from those sections that describe each of those. But that gives you a kind of simple, bare-bones idea of what's going on in Psalm 69. It says, For the choir director, according to Shashanim, a psalm of David... Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk into deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O Lord, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Save me 
O God. So the very first request, he is begging God to deliver him, to rescue him, to save him. Look at verse 35. In verse 35, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah. So from the beginning to the end of the psalm, it speaks of God's salvation. But there are also a couple of other references in verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. And then in verse 29, But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, may your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. But quite a few references to salvation, which particularly in this psalm seems to be deliverance from his distress. If we were taking this literally, what character of the Bible would you think of? For the waters have threatened my life, and I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. Who would you think of? Jonah. Yeah. Uh, and one reason I like to answer that, ask that question is because I'm thinking, is there anybody else that faces like that dilemma? That's always the answer I get, Jonah. And it's uh, maybe, I guess, maybe when Paul shipwrecked in Acts 27, we could force that a little bit, that kind of idea. But yes, I, I think of Jonah like you do. and But waters have threatened my life. And that word... Uh, life can mean soul. It can mean neck. It can. It's like the waters keep rising, and he just barely got his head above water. And maybe we know that feeling, even when we're standing firmly on dry ground. The waters have threatened my life, and it's a bad combination. Because as the waters are rising, his footing is unstable. I sunk into deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. He can't find any footing. He can't find any stability. And he says in verse 3, I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. He has cried out so long, begging for distress. He can hardly speak anymore. When I was first starting preaching at 15 years old, I would preach my sermon so many times before I got to the pulpit that sometimes I hardly had a voice left to speak once I got in the pulpit. What if that was crying out in distress? I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. His eyes keep looking Hoping, expecting, only to be disappointed. Again, maybe you can sympathize with these words. 
those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. I have as a footnote that I wrote down 40, Psalm 40 verse 12. There David speaks of his sins being more than the hairs of his head. Here he speaks of his enemies being more than the hairs on his head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. His enemies are many. His enemies are powerful. His enemies are ruthless. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Now, he is being persecuted without cause in verse 4. Without cause. And yet... While he is innocent of the things for which he is persecuted, while he is innocent, he knows he's not fully innocent. In verse 5, O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. You know my folly. Now, some say, one writer I was reading, I didn't write down the source of this, but he says we shouldn't regard this as a full confession of sin. Well, I looked at uh, some other passages that use this particular word, folly. And one example is Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, verse 23. And after an extended warning against adultery, the Bible says he will die for lack of instruction and the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. That's Proverbs 5, 23. Same word for folly as, uh, as is used right here. Um, this word is also used in Proverbs 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Now, what I'm trying to say, I don't see how you get around the fact he is acknowledging his foolishness. You have had at some point, probably, as I have had, an experience where you are accused of wrongdoing where you know you're utterly innocent. But at the same time, you know that you're not utterly innocent. Because there are other things you've done wrong. It may not be I'm guilty of the thing of which I'm accused, but I'm guilty. And I think this psalm is really fascinating because in this psalm, you see both a statement of his innocence and even in the next section we're going to look at his persecution comes not because of his unfaithfulness to God but because of his faithfulness to God. That's why his persecution comes. But even though you have that, you also have an acknowledgement of wrongdoing of iniquities, of sins, of folly. Now, and feel free any point to jump in. I think you should feel completely comfortable in our um, smaller crowd tonight. I know a couple have written us today and said they weren't going to be able to come. Um, and uh, But in verse 
6. Let me, let me say something here that I hope can just help you some with reading the Psalms. Um, I, I like the way the poetry is set up sometimes. This is verse 6. I'm centering on verse 6. Psalm 69.6 May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. O oh, oh Lord, God of hosts. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you notice that it says, Lord, it has God in all capitals. The reason, the word Lord is actually, the word God here is actually the term Yahweh. This is another word for Lord. I think some of your versions will have, O Lord, Lord of hosts. It's actually two different words for They'll have the word Lord in all capitals. But let's call this line A, and this line B, and this line C. Okay? Let's look at the latter part of the verse. May those... Who seek you? Doesn't that look suspiciously? Just like that first line. May those who wait for you, and may those who seek you. And does that also help us understand what it means to wait for God? It means we seek God. Or what does it mean to seek God? It means to wait for God. Before he prayed, may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. And in verse 6, he also says, may those who seek you not be <coughs> dishonored through me. May they not be dishonored through me. And so that is very similar not be ashamed, not be dishonored. And then he gave a description of God or a title of God, O Lord God of hosts. And here he gives the phrase, O God of Israel. So I, I just give that to you if that can help. And, and you find... It's not always in these arrangements. Sometimes it may be a more of an A, B, B, A point. Uh, maybe in all kinds of formats. But do you have any question about that or anything I've said to this point? Anything or any point you want to make? Okay, in this description of his distress, I want you to notice how often he talks about being dishonored through God. But he says, I don't want you to be ashamed. I don't want those who wait for you to be ashamed through me. I don't want those who seek you to be dishonored through me. Okay. Let's suppose America 
sends out a diplomat or has a diplomat in some poor country of the world and he is taken he is murdered maybe even murdered and burned burned with an American flag does a country feel an obligation to defend its diplomat that would put us in a very difficult position if it was a nation of equal strength of power should God defend those who are his servants if he doesn't defend those who are his servants does God look weak just keep that in mind as he's begging that others who are in his position of waiting of seeking on God not be dishonored not be put to shame and he says in verse 7 let's just read verses 7 through 12 because for your sake I have borne reproach dishonor has covered my face I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me when I wept in my soul with fasting it became my reproach I have become a set I have made when I made sackcloth my clothing I became a byword to them those who sit in the gate talk about me and I am a song of drunkards now look at the times he specifically mentions that he has served that he is experiencing distress because of God in 69 and verse 7 69 verse 7 he states there uh, for your sake I have borne reproach in verse 9 zeal for your house has consumed me in verse 9 the reproaches of those the latter part of verse 9 the reproaches of those who reproached you has fallen on me they were insulting the psalmist with the insults and reproaches that were intended for God the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me how hurt would we be if someone insults our children or insults our grandchildren who didn't even know them but just hated us and here how does God feel when his servants are reproached because they hate God and oppose God. And by the way, that word reproach is a key word in this psalm. Reproach. Used in verse 7. In verse 9. It will be used later in verse 19. And verse 20. Uh, 19 and verse 20. 
Well, it's also used in 10. It's used in 10. 10, 19, and 20. It's used five times. And one of the terms, the reproaches of those that reproach, one time it's used as a verb in addition to this in 69.9. So, uh, verb or participle. But anyway, the point is, the word in all is used about six times in some different form. Same Hebrew word. But because of, because of his devotion to God, because of his zeal for God's house, he is insulted. He is shamed. Notice in verse 8, he experiences the height of alienation in the ancient Near East. He is alienated from those closest to him. I have become estranged from my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Even his family has forsaken him because of his zeal for God, his love for God, his zeal for God's house. The more humble he becomes with service, the more despised he becomes. You see that in verse 10 and verse 11, when I wept in my soul with fasting, he's weeping, he's fasting. In verse 11, I made sackcloth, my clothing. He's weeping. He's fasting. He's wearing sackcloth. And in verse 10, it's my reproach. I became a byword to them. And in verse 12, those who sit in the gate talk about me, but I am the song of drunkards. Somebody pointed out that verse uh, from everybody from top to bottom is against him. Okay. It's a great point, John, but I was about to just set that up and be real dramatic and start crying with it, okay? <laughs> so, but you're right. That is called, do you have a, the name for that when, uh, it, when you do uh, it? I wouldn't want to rob you of that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. That is called a merism. Merism. And... and but that is, you're exactly right. The point, who are the people who sit in the gate? Leaders. The leaders, these would be the most respected of people. The virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is the one uh, whose husband sits in the gate. I think Proverbs 31 is more directed to young men than young ladies, telling them, if you want to be a leader, this is the kind of woman that you marry. This is the leaders. This is the most respected. These are the height. This is the height of society. And then you have the drunkards mentioned who are the lowest of society. And to take those positions, as John says, I was just going to say merism. Actually, you worded it better. What how did you how did you have that worded there? Everybody from top to bottom. From top to bottom. And this implies to everything in between is mocking him. Now, I told you to wait. 
in applying this to Jesus. But let's make a point here. When Jesus was crucified, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, are mocking him. Saying he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him rescue him. That was the chief priest, scribes and the elders. The robbers who were crucified with him were also insulting him in the same words. Those passages, Matthew 27 41 through 43 about the chief priests, elders, and scribes in Matthew 27, 44. Jesus was mocked by all the people from top to bottom. From the highest to the lowest. Jesus truly enters our pain. What thoughts do you have right there? What ideas? So you have a description of begging God for distress, a description of the distress. And he is suffering because of his love for God. He is suffering from the highest to the lowest and even his family. He's suffering from all of them. Once again, he's going to beg God to save him. There's going to be a lot of emphasis in this text on the character of God. Let me read 13 through 18. Um, or Isaiah, why don't you read it? Let me save my throat a second. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good, According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Okay, very good, very good. Um, so much there to be said. We said, look at what it says about God. He is begging God to deliver him, to save him from his distress. But what does he say about God himself? What is his description of God? Well, he mentions in verse 13 and verse 16, God's loving kindness. God's loving kindness. He mentions, in verse 13, he mentions God's truth, or as, you're using the ESV, aren't you, Isaiah? Mm -hmm. 
he or he mentions his faithfulness. His loving kindness, his truth, or his faithfulness. And then in verse 16, mentions his loving kindness again, but mentions his compassion. And in the ESV again, that was translated how Isaiah? Steadfast love. Steadfast love. Or is it steadfast love? Steadfast love might be oh, more compassion. loving. I thought you were talking about loving kindness. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, compassion is abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. So he is begging God, deliver me because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, your faithfulness, because of your compassion and your abundant mercy. Now, we could talk about all kinds of passages where those words appear together. But, but one of the most important is, is Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when the Lord is revealing himself to Moses, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, our word translated compassion or abundant mercy, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Some of your versions may have faithfulness there. Who keeps his loving kindness for thousands. God's character is the basis of his appeal. He has stated his innocence. He has begged God, remember that these who reproach me are reproaching you. But, but his basis for hope is the character of God. God's loving kindness. God's truth. God's Compassion. And we've pointed out before, this word compassion was used in Psalm 51 and is actually connected to the Hebrew word for womb. Just as a mother has compassion on the children, her children, God's compassion on us. That is a legitimate illustration. I'm not trying to be politically correct. I'm trying to be biblically correct here. But that's a legitimate biblical description of the motherhood of God. That a picture of a mother's love for her child is a picture of God's love for us. Now, he continues on with describing his distress. And a lot of his distress is described just like it was at the beginning. Verses 14 and 15 sound a lot like verses 1 and 2, don't they? Deliver me from the mire. Do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of waters not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. And both these words for deep and pit are sometimes used for Sheol or death. So he's describing his distress again. And he begs God in verse 18, redeem me, ransom me. Now, this is a point I didn't know if I had time to squeeze in one more commentary this afternoon. I squeezed it in and I got this one thing from it. I'm glad I did. And I hope I can express it 
in a way that will make you glad I did. Remember how he talked in 69-8 of his family forsaking him. But also, in the Old Testament, the family performed the act of redemption. For example, if you were poor and you were sold into slavery in Leviticus 25, your family could redeem you, pay the price that you be freed from slavery. If you became poor and had to sell your family land, the family, somebody in the family could redeem you and pay uh, for uh, you to receive back your land and your house. And if you were killed, the family acted as blood avengers. There was a court case. There were all those nice, those barriers to just seeing vigilantes. But all of these things. The family did this. His family's forsaken him. And so he's begging God, you act as my family. Go near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me from my enemies. He's begging God to do what those nearest to him would not. And it illustrates Psalm 27, 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. What thoughts there? What ideas? <clears throat> Is there a difference in eight between uh, the reference to his brothers versus his mother's sons? A writer named Robert Alter, who taught at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, wrote commentaries on much of the Psalms and wrote books like Reading the Prophets and Reading the Poets and Reading uh, the Historical Narratives. He said that he thought in two-thirds of the parallel lines in the Psalms, two-thirds of them, the second line has an intensification of the first line. I think, John, it's basically the same thing, but there is an intensification. You could be brothers in the ancient world and have different mothers but have the same father. It'd be half-brother. Remember, with all those, Absalom kills his brother Amnon, but Amnon's a half-brother. He kills his half-brother because that brother raped his full sister, Tamar. So there's a difference in that. And it is an intensification from the brothers to the mother's son. So yes, it is an intensification of that. Anything else? Um, verses 19 through 21, he is describing his distress again. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor and all my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. 
And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, you know is emphatic. It uses the personal pronoun you, and then and then the verb know uh, is also second masculine plural. It's like you, you know. Same situation in verse 5. Oh God, it is you who knows. It was the same um, grammar set up, Hebrew language set up. But the point in verse 5 God is fully aware of the psalmist's folly. But in verse 19, God is fully aware of his innocent suffering as well. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. You know that. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart. In this line, I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. I don't know if Christy will remember this. And I hope I can relate this without getting too upset but I can remember when our second son Nathan was only about eight or nine telling us about a story he had read in a reader's digest where there was a new boy in school and the student was telling this from the standpoint his mother eventually came to help this boy but there was a new kid in school and the teacher introduced him and he said he stood up smiling at the class looking from person to person hoping to find one smiling face one gracious face to connect with and he said none of us gave that to him That's hard in a neutral situation. How about that in a case where you're singled out for shame and dishonor and disgrace? Some of you will know the words better than I do. No friend with words to comfort, nor hand to help was there when the meek and lowly humbly bowed in prayer. He looked for comforters, but there was none. There was none. Gall was extremely bitter. That is his food. Vinegar, um, that is his drink. 
the things that were supposed to sustain him and provide a measure of comfort instead only intensify his suffering. And he says in verse 12, or verse 22, and I want you to notice one writer said at verses 22 through 29 where he has a petition for judgment on his enemies and a begging for him to be saved. It some ways takes these verses and says what they have done to him, may it be done to them. And it does. It also deals with some other places in the Psalms. But let's just read. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. They tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. And may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out in the book of life. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. Now, when he says, may their table become a snare... And may it become a trap. They have done that to his table in the previous verse. They have gave him gall for his food and vinegar for his drink. And he asked for Lex Talionis on them. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. Remember in verse 3, he said, My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Now in verse 23, May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. The same God who shows His loving kindness, who shows His faithfulness, who shows His compassion and abundant mercy, the same God who does this is also a God whose anger burns against those who persecute His people. In verse 24, pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. God's love for His people it's sometimes going to lead him to pour out his wrath on those who mistreat his people. They had estranged from him his brothers and his mother's sons in verse 8. In verse 25, may their count be desolate. May none dwell in it, their tents. In verse 26, they persecute those whom you yourself have smitten. Some of his problems may have come from the hand of God, but his enemies like to pile on those who were weak. Add iniquity to your iniquity. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. Now, when we think of the book of life, what biblical book do we think of most readily? <clears throat> Y'all got it. Revelation. You think of Revelation. In Revelation, it's more of a picture of eternal life. It is, um, it's used other places in the Old Testament, like Exodus 32, 32 and 33, um, Daniel 12, 1, 
it seems to carry more of the idea of people who are living. Now, it's still pretty strong. He's asking that God put them to death. But it's still strong. But it's not be lost forever. Um, And while he asks for judgment upon his foes, he begs for deliverance for himself. But notice again how the deliverance is in terms... It's described in terms of the distress, a way as distressed as described earlier. For example, in verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. Remember how his feet were sinking in the mire in verses 2 and 3. In verses 14 and 15, the flood was overwhelming him and the deep was swallowing him up. And now to be set up high on a safe place. Above the flood of waters. What a beautiful thought. A beautiful thought. But this psalm, like so many, ends in praise. As dark as things looked to verse 21, and maybe even to verse 29, dark as they looked, this is going to end in praise. Now in verse 30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. By the way, this thanks seems to be verbal here. In, not, not instrumental. In verse 31, And it will please the Lord better than an ox... Or a young bull with horns and hoofs. Now, this is not a criticism of sacrifice, but it is stating that with these offerings of thanksgiving, they offered songs, they they magnified God's name. God wanted the whole heart behind those sacrifices. And in verse 32, the humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. Remember back in verse 6, may those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. He once again mentions those who seek God in verse 32. He prayed those who seek God not be ashamed through Him. And here, those who are seeking God are all encouraged by God's deliverance of the psalmist. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His who are prisoners. And all of the universe is pictured as bursting forth in praise. Let heaven and earth praise Him. The sea and everything that moves in it. For God will save Zion. Will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of His servants will inherit it. And those who love His name will dwell in it. Now it's true, not of 100%, but almost 100%, of these psalms of individual lament will end in a statement of praise. And I think it's ultimately a reminder to us that one day God will change 
our laments into praise. When we grieve, when we are broken, when we are full of distress, when we don't think we can take another step, when we are in those circumstances and we continue to look to God for our answer and we continue to trust in Him, eventually He will turn our lament to praise. I think the whole message of the Bible is it may not happen here. But it will happen. I um, This is a very dumb illustration, okay? Forgive me for this. But if you follow... If you follow a sports team year after year... They'll get your hopes up and they'll bring your hopes dashing down. And you walk away time after time and say, I'm quitting. I'm giving up. Don't even talk to me about them. But you keep coming back. And something happens. An unexpected game, an unexpected season. And it makes you see all of a sudden all those moments of disappointment were worth this one moment of victory. Now I know that's a stupid illustration because it's there's no comparison. But if that is true in that respect, how much more When we talk about an eternity that never never ends. A victory that never ends. Whatever victory you win here, whatever achievement you reach, it's going to be forgotten. And sometimes you may try to watch it again to try to relive that feeling that you had at that moment, but never quite reaches it. But in scenes of bliss, forever new, rise in succession to our view. We will through all eternity be enraptured with His presence. If anything on earth is worth waiting for, how much more is God worth waiting for? That's my point. That's my point. Now, I didn't give you much time to talk and we haven't reached our most critical moment. And we're still at five till. But what great thoughts do you all have on this psalm? The parallels, you, you pointed this out in at least one instance, but the parallels to Psalm 27 are just really repetitive. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of similar thought. Okay. I don't want to pursue that, but I just see. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to look back at that because I'm, I'm not remembering. It. I point out one. I do remember Psalm twenty seven ten, but uh, that's that's a good Lord point. Said, I'm going to have to look. Verse twenty nine. Verse twenty nine. You uh-huh. you lift me up on a rock. You lift okay. my head up above my enemies. Yes. Yes. Good point. For example. Good point. Very good point. 
Yeah, 27.6. Good thought. What else? Okay. Now, looking at how this applies to Jesus, right now, I've tried to, I've made a couple other applications already, but let's just look at some verses that may be specifically quoted right now, because you get a bunch of those. In verse 4, he talks about those who hate him without cause. Those who hate him without cause. And Jesus quotes that in John 15, 25. They hated me without a cause. Now I know that that also seems to refer, Psalm 35 verse 19 makes the same statement. I think both of those are, are included there. Both of those are the same kind of Psalms in that, in that particular respect where a person is hated or persecuted without cause. Now, zeal for your house... <clears throat> has consumed me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. You know the context where that's quoted uh, of Jesus. What what did he do? Cleanse the temple. John 2, verse 17, I believe it is, and his disciples remembered the statement, zeal for your house has consumed me. Then, the second part of that statement, the reproaches of those who reproached you has fallen on me is quoted in Romans 15 verse 3 and applied to Jesus. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Psalm 69 verse 21. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst They gave me vinegar. Particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus cries, I thirst. They gave him vinegar to drink. It says this fulfills the Scripture. All the Gospels, I think, I know Matthew, Mark, and John, all the Gospels speak of them giving Jesus vinegar to drink. John specifically says it fulfills the Scripture. Now, that is not a direct quote from Scripture that he fulfilled, but it is. it seems to be a reference to this passage. And we've seen that looking for comfort and there being none, we, we've already seen that idea. Uh, we, we may add those passages in just a moment. Psalm 69.25. This is... Well, the first of all, Psalm 69, 22 and 23. That is quoted by Paul in Romans 11, verses 8 through 10, to describe the Jews who have rejected Jesus. And verse 25 is quoted and applied to Judas. In Acts one verse twenty, in Acts one twenty five, quote Psalm sixty nine, verse twenty five. May their count be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. And applies those words to Judas. So the imprecatory part of this psalm 
is applied to those who have rejected Jesus. Jesus fulfills the part of the innocent sufferer. Now, that doesn't even begin. We're just talking about passages that are specifically quoted. We've already talked about that merism in verse 12 of how he's mocked by everyone applies to Jesus. We've already talked about looking for comforters and there being none applies to Jesus. So Jesus fulfills these specific passages. He fulfills 69.12. He fulfills 69.20. He fulfills... What else? Because you always come up with things that I've missed in this part. What else? Yes. Not only without a cause, but also the number of his foes. The multitude. It is interesting. When Matthew 26 starts, the religious leaders are saying, we want to kill Jesus, but not during the feast, lest it cause a riot among the people. But things had so drastically changed and the chief priest had been so successful in stirring up the crowds in their hatred toward Jesus. In Matthew 27, Pilate washes his hands lest he start a riot among the people and says, I am free of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And they said, let his blood be on us and upon our children. It went to a riot from the fact, a riot if Jesus was killed, to a riot if he wasn't killed. The multitudes are chanting, crucify him. So you're right. Not only is he hated, but his enemies, his enemies are many. What else? Verse 29, salvation comes through pain. Okay. I am afflicted and in pain. Because of the affliction and pain of Jesus, the ultimate innocent sufferer, God's salvation is brought. Okay. Now both of those are points I had to follow. Um, Verse 4, um, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. Second uh, Corinthians 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Okay, okay, that's a good point, yeah. What's the verse in Corinthians? Second uh, Corinthians 5, 21. Yeah, yeah, that is... I think we could go on a longer time. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to listen to it. If you got anything else, but I'm sure we're all missing some things here because 
Mary? Um, verse 8 uh, about being abandoned by your physical yeah. You know, his own yeah. brothers didn't. Well, he has to commit, particularly you see it in terms of the cross, where he commits the care of his mother to John. Yeah. Commits the care. And you know, it, what's, what's one of the things interesting to me is it says he took her in his house from that day. The brothers become believers pretty soon, but she keeps staying with John. Now, I don't know what that says. I don't know. I've, I've wondered about that. I don't know what it says. But that's interesting to me. Because the brothers are going to become convinced pretty quickly after this. But they were not believers at that moment. So that is right. He is forsaken in his greatest moment of difficulty. And when he is forsaken by them, God will redeem him in verse 18. If we were to tie that back in, that God redeems him and vindicates him by raising him from the dead. Now, with everything I've said and everything you've said, we know Psalm 69 is not exclusively about Jesus. How can we, I say that. Why do I say that? Verse 5. Verse 5. Jesus would not speak like this. Oh God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Jesus never says that. Jesus asked, which of you convicts me of sin? John 8, 46. Which of you convicts me? Even when Pilate shouts out, what has he done? The crowds don't answer, but continue to ask, crucify him. Crucify him. Oh God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden. This is not exclusively of Jesus. Now, so um, 69.5, not exclusively of Jesus. This talks about David's experiences. And as David experiences these innocent suffering, as he is despised for his zeal for God's house, as the reproaches of those that reproach him fall on me. What does it mean that, that all these words are quoted and fulfilled in Jesus in a deeper way? One thing I think it shows us. The very fact that Jesus on the cross makes reference to Psalm 22, makes reference to Psalm 31, and if we are right, makes reference to uh, Psalm 69. Jesus takes some of the most pain-filled of the Psalms and makes them his own. When people say, and I've had people say it to me, and I've seen more often people say it on things like the internet. And God just wants us to be happy. Whoever you love, if you love your secretary, God just wants you to be happy. Well, how about your wife that you're married to? Or their husband they're married to? Does God not want them to be happy? Or whoever you love, whatever you do, whatever. God just wants you to be happy. Isn't it a shame that Jesus never got to experience that? But he experiences pain, rejection, 
and shame and reproach and murder. And he did it for our salvation. Jesus takes the most pain-filled psalms and makes them his own. He takes the most pain-filled psalms and makes them his own. But I, I think this is a lesson to us. If this doesn't speak directly of Jesus and yet it speaks fully of Jesus, I think any innocent sufferer of the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. For example, when you have the account of Naboth and Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21, that's not quoted in the New Testament and said Jesus is the fulfillment of, of Naboth who was killed falsely or false accusation. But look at all the parallels. Look at the false wit, the most powerful people in the land rise against him. They falsely accuse him. They accuse him of blasphemy. They take him outside the city and kill him. Just by accident. I think God piles on all those things so we don't miss that any of these experiences of innocent suffering foreshadow him. They all do. From, from Abel to Genesis 4. All through the Old Testament. But I think that also does this for us. It is painful. It's painful to experience rejection, hatred, reproach, and shame. It's painful to experience that and with some people, with some people, they give in to this. And maybe with all of us, this is a temptation. We are inclined to become bitter toward God. But our unjust suffering should not lead us to feel bitter before God. It should increase our appreciation for the ultimate innocent sufferer. However innocent I've ever been of any charge made against me, in my best days, I could still say, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Jesus could never say that, and he experienced more intense sufferings than I've ever dreamed of. One, one other thing is you don't see any bitterness toward God, but you don't see any bitterness toward His enemies. Father, uh, forgive them. So they know Good point. Good point. Good point. Verses 22 through 28, through 29, where He asked judgment on His enemies, is one point where this psalm drastically differs from Jesus. That is not to say all imprecatory statements are wrong because you do find those in the Old Testament, New Testament. We find some of those imprecatory statements quoted of his enemies, but he says, Father, forgive them. I don't know if I will ever completely grasp 
Matter of fact, I, well, I'll just say it this way. I'm quite confident I'll never completely grasp that kind of love. May God help me display it as much as I can and we'll understand it when he brings us home in eternity. But in a very real sense, each of us acted as the drunkards who mocked and scoffed at him as he was crucified for us. Thank you guys for listening and thank you for being patient. Um, Bob, would you lead us in prayer? Holy Father, how great you are. We thank you, God, for this hour to study these marvelous words that you have left for us that help us peer into who you are and your will for us and your great love, which is to us immeasurable and beyond description. Oh God, we we feel unworthy and we always will. But we know you, Father, and we, we love you and we we trust your promises. And it is our prayer that as we see you better each day, that we can speak your name in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, to those who would, who would listen and to those who need uh, to hear such, oh God. Help us to fear not. Help us to be confident as we uh, endeavor to share you and your Son with this world. Oh God in heaven, how great is your name. How humbled we are in your presence. May we remain that way until we look upon your face one day. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.